The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome this morning to Berean Bible Church. For the next two weeks, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at an overview of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is one of those books that, you know, when when someone becomes a new Christian, the first thing they want to do is run to the book of Revelation and they want to read it. And they start reading it and their head's just spinning because they're like, what in the world is going on here? It can be very, very confusing. The, The vivid imagery, the dramatic message of Revelation, you know, it captivates people, but they just get confused. They don't, they don't understand what's going on there. Um, Philip Schaff, uh, a church historian, has noted over 90 years ago, he said this about the book of Revelation, the literature of the apocalypse, that's the book of Revelation, that's what he's referring to, especially in English, is immense, but mostly impository rather than expository. Now, impository preaching is preaching that seeks to take a theme for a sermon and then you impose a text upon it. In other words, one preacher said, I got a good message, I just need a verse to fit it. Okay? That's not really the best way to attack, approach the Scriptures. It's mostly impository rather than expository, and hence worthless or even mischievous because it's confounding and misleading. I think he's right. So much that has been written on the book of Revelation is absolutely confusing. It is not helpful at all. It is more harmful. Um, The publication by Edgar C. Wisenot is an example of the misleading nature of the apocalypse. I don't know how many of you remember this. Some of you were old enough to remember this. This book came out um, in 1988, and it was 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 88. Six million copies of this book sold, and it caused quite a stir among evangelicals. And this is not the first, I mean, how many before this have predicted the coming of Christ and when it's going to happen and set the date? I remember in the summer of 88, sitting on my mother's deck out back by the pool, reading this book. And by the time I got done, I was convinced, this is it. The Lord's going to be here anytime now, alright? He's going to return in September of 1988. Regional news reports noted that a number of Christians took the message so seriously, they quit their jobs. I mean, why do you want to be working when the Lord shows up, right? You know, just be relaxing. So they quit their jobs and and just waiting for the imminent return. I called to order a book from a major Christian book outlet only to get a recording that says they were off because the Lord was returning that day. I mean, I was really shocked to hear that recording. I thought, wow, they took the day off, all right? Needless to say, they all came back to work a little later, okay? A little disappointed, a little upset. And that's a problem with these things. When, you know, when preachers write books like this and people are so convinced, when it doesn't happen, then what? We're like discouraged. We're like, well, what, what went wrong here? How did, how did he not show up? Well, let me say here that Mr. Wisenut did get something right, Okay? He believed that the Lord would return on the Feast of Trumpets. The only problem was, he was about 2,000 years late. 
You know? Now, this end-of-the-world frenzy of the 19th century spawned a lot of different groups. Uh, groups like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Christadelphians, countless other last-days groups. In recent times, the frenzy has continued with things like um, uh, Marshall Applewhite. Anybody heard of him? Familiar with him? It was Heaven's Gate. Remember Heaven's Gate cult leader? And the frenzy continues today, and I think it's just going to keep going on. People keep picking dates and writing books and making money. Recently, John Hagee had churchianity in uproar with his teaching on the four blood moons. Something is about to change. Yeah? Well, hopefully it's Hagee's theology that's about to change. Because it's, uh, you know... I mean, he started this series on the four blood moons by reading Joel 2, 30 and 31, and Acts 2, 19 and 20, and said that these four blood moons that ran from April 15, 2014 to September 28, 2015, are what Joel and Peter was talking about. He says there will be a world-shaking event. And I did some messages on this. And I said when this date comes and goes, nothing's going to happen. Guess what? Nothing happened. The date came, the date went. I don't know, Hagee's probably got a new book, you know, being written about the end times. You know, he was so sure it was going to happen. The frenzy continues to survive because people have such misconceptions about the book of Revelation and the time frame for their occurrence. That's the whole problem. We don't understand when is all this supposed to happen, although the book tells us very plainly when it's supposed to happen. And the sad thing about all this confusion is the book of Revelation is written to reveal. Revelation. It's to reveal things. You know, but I think the problem is, and, you know, like I said, new Christians run to this book because, well, this is cool. And they read it. You know why they get so confused? Because the book of Revelation is the most biblical book in the Bible. And by that I mean, John quotes hundreds of passages from the Tanakh. And if you're not familiar with the Tanakh, you get to Revelation, you're so confused. That's the last book of the Bible. Read the rest of it first so you have some understanding of what they're talking about. In order to understand Revelation, you need to know the Tanakh. You need to have a handle on what the terms that the Bible uses there. And you also need to be willing to work. And listen, you need to be willing to think outside the box of churchianity. Churchianity, I don't mean Christianity, I mean churchianity. The church has this box and everybody's supposed to believe what they say inside this box. And you get outside that and you're branded a heretic. But you need to be willing to think outside the box to see what the Bible actually says. Now let me add here that I believe that John, the John referred to in Revelation, is not the Apostle John, not one of the twelve, I believe it's Lazarus, whom the Lord raised from the dead. I believe Lazarus wrote the Gospel of John. We've talked about that many times. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. And that's why these are so familiar with one another. Now that being said, throughout this message, I'm going to refer to him as John. Okay? Because his name was John Eleazar, or Lazarus. So we'll just refer to him as John, so not to confuse things any further. Paul instructs believers this way. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. All right? Don't despise it, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. 
The word examine here is from the Greek word dokimadzo. It's a technical word for testing money to determine whether it's counterfeit. We're to test all things. Now the problem is the majority of believers don't test anything. They live by their emotions. They live by their moods. They don't know how to examine. You know, Christianity has basically thrown logic out the window, thinking out the window and said, you know, just get pumped up about this and feel, you know, let your emotions take you away. We need to learn to use our minds and we need to think through what the Bible says. As we study the book of Revelation, like I said, you got to be willing to think. You got to set your emotions, you got to set your traditions aside and carefully and closely study the Word of God. This book is nothing less than an inspired revelation from God and it deserves our attention. And like I said, all you need is just a little bit of thinking. And it will change the way you look at this book. Now, before we can study the text of Revelation, three questions require thoughtful consideration. All right, we've got to ask these. When was this book written? That's fundamental to understanding it. When was it written? Secondly, what's the proper approach? We'll look at the different approaches for this. And thirdly, what is the theme? Now, we're going to look at one and two today. And next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the theme here. I think one of the most important issues that confronts the interpreter of Revelation is the date it was written. And two views compete for validity. All right, When was it written? Well, the late date view says it was written 95 to 96. This is the current evangelical opinion. This is what most people think. And if you dare ask them, where would you get that date from? They'll just stare at you because they don't know where it came from. But just as everybody believes this. Well, yeah, it's written in 96. And then you have the early date view that says it was written in 80, 65 to 66. The early date view says that Revelation speaks of the birth pains of the kingdom. The beginning of church history. Whereas the late date view allows for a wide variety of interpretations. It views the book as the end of the kingdom and of the church age, which is an unending age, so it really never ends, but they view it that way. Does Revelation speak of a looming great tribulation that will bring worldwide chaos upon the scene of contemporary history? Or did it inform the first century Christians of the grave and trying times that they would face that would demonstrate that Christianity could weather the storms? This is really a practical matter. You know, understanding what this book is talking about and who is it talking to. Well, the late date view, like I said, which is by far the predominant view, comes exclusively from external evidence based on a statement by Arrhenius. He, he lived from 120 to 202. Arrhenius is the only source for the late dating of Revelation. All other sources refer back to him. So you got one guy, makes this comment, everybody follows him. Now there are other early writers whose statements indicate that John wrote Revelation much earlier. I think the safest course to approaching this and finding out the date is to look at Revelation itself. See if it tells us something. Look at internal evidence. Because internal evidence is inspired. External evidence is not. Now, if you want to dig into this deeper, Kenneth Gentry wrote a book called Before Jerusalem Fell, The Dating of the Book of Revelation. It is 400 pages. 
on simply the dating of the book of Revelation. All right? And Gentry, after 400 pages, arrives at an early date view. And again, he goes over the evidence that, you know, Arrhenius is the only one who came up with this late date. Everybody just followed him. So let's look at the Revelation itself and see if it can tell us something about when was this written. I think it provides self-witness to the date. Let's look at Revelation 11, 1 through 2. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar. All right, this is John. John's being told, here's a measuring rod. Go measure the temple of God and the altar. And those who worship in it, leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. All right. John's given a measuring rod, go measure the temple. What's the problem with this at the late date view? Where's the temple? When was it destroyed? 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. So if this is written in 96, he's saying, go measure that. It's not there. It's not even around, but go measure it. Well, is this what he's talking about here? See, these verses refer to a temple. This temple is in a city called the Holy City, right? Now, based on Scripture, and since John, who wrote this, was a Hebrew, he'd have the historical city of Jerusalem in mind, okay? Jerusalem is the Holy City. Let me prove that to you real quickly. Isaiah 52.1 Awake, clothe yourselves in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourselves in your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the Holy City. All right? How about Nehemiah 11.1? Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Alright, so Jerusalem is the holy city. Now for further identification of this city, look at Revelation 11.8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. The city is the site of the Lord's crucifixion. This can only be the historical Jerusalem. So what temple stood in Jerusalem? Well, it was the Jewish temple, obviously, right? The Jewish temple, it was known at that time as Herod's temple. Herod the Great came to power about 37 B.C. And he determined that he was going to please his Jewish subjects and impress the Romans with his kingly qualities by making the Jerusalem temple bigger and better than it had ever been. So Herod's temple was rebuilt, this temple standing in Jerusalem. Alright? He's to measure that temple. This is the historical structure. And I said, you know, this internal evidence gives us a problem if this is written after AD 70 because this temple's not there. And it's talking about it like, go measure it, you know, go measure this thing. Alright, this is the historical structure for three reasons. First of all, this is located in Jerusalem. He says, the holy city. All right, we just looked at that. This temple is in the holy city. Secondly, according to Revelation 11.2, it was to be under attack for 42 months. Now, what's interesting is that if we do a little study in history, we find out that Jerusalem was under siege for 42 months. Nero commissioned Flavian Vespasian, a Roman general, to engage Israel in war in February of AD 67. Now, he actually entered the Promised Land and engaged in battle that spring so that the Jewish war with Rome lasted from spring AD 67 
until the temple fell in August or September of AD 70, 42 months later. Huh. The Bible says 42 months. This is a historical event that happened in 40, for 42 months, but it ended in AD 70. Now, Luke 21.20 contains Yeshua's prophecy regarding the temple. He says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Is that hard to figure out? The city is being surrounded. Guess what? It's about to go down. You can figure that out, right? All right. Going down. 42 months. Now, the time from Revelation 11 just happens to fit with what history tells us of the Jewish war. And again, that war ended in AD 70. And finally, the structure of Revelation 11, 1, 2, 2 parallels Yeshua's statement in His Olivet Discourse found in Luke 21, 20-24. In Luke 21, 5-7, His disciples point out the temple and they ask about its future. Lord, what's going to happen to this? And He tells them, it's soon to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. In Luke 21-24, He speaks in terms which echoed, are echoed in Revelation 11-2. These two passages speak of the same event, the destruction of Jerusalem. So when we talk about when was it written, well, the late day view just doesn't fit with the evidence. These things can't be happening. We know from historical and we know from archaeological evidence that the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Now, if the temple was still standing when John wrote, he must have written before AD 70. Had to have. He's told to measure it. All right, that's just one piece of internal evidence. Now, Revelation 17 is the second major piece of internal evidence for the early date view. In Revelation 17, a vision of a seven-headed beast is recorded. And this vision offers clear evidence that Revelation was recorded before the death of Nero Caesar. And we know Nero committed suicide on June 9th, A.D. 68. So if Nero's still alive during the writing, guess what? It had to be written prior to A.D. 70. Let's look at uh, Revelation 17, 1-6 here. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her on her hand a cup full of the abominations and of the unclean things and her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Yeshua. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Let's drop down to verse 9. He says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So verses 1, 3, and 6 of Revelation 17 describe this vision. We see all this Fanciful stuff. Well, verse 9 gives us clues to the meaning of the vision. Now, almost all scholars recognize that the seven mountains of Revelation 17.9 represent the seven hills of Rome. John points out that the wise one will understand. 
the recipients of this letter lived under the rule of Rome, which was universally distinguished by its seven hills. So how could the recipients of this letter who lived in the seven historical churches of Asia under Roman imperial rule understand anything else by this geological reference? They get it. They know what's going on there. Look at verse 10. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now here we see that the seven heads also represent a political situation. There are seven kings. We see here that the seven heads correspond to the line of the Caesars. All right, there's seven of them. First, he says, five have fallen. That's past tense. The first five Caesars were Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. All right? Five have fallen. Those are done. Now he says, one is. This is present tense. Who's the one that is? It's Nero. Nero was the sixth Caesar. Nero was on the throne when John wrote. And Nero reigned from October AD 54 until June of AD 68 when he committed suicide because his empire was in civil war. So he is on the throne when this is being written. So it has to be an early date. He says, the other has not yet come. There's someone coming after Nero. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. This is future tense. The seventh Caesar was Galba. He reigned for seven months. Seven months, from June eighty sixty eight to January eighty sixty nine. So in Revelation seventeen seven, the angel says, Why do you wonder? I'll show you the mystery. And in verse 9 and 10, the vision is explained. Here's these Caesars. Five have fallen. One is. He's reigning right now. That's Nero. There's someone following him. It'll last a short time. The seven heads refer to the historical place, Rome, and the political scene, Nero's reign. Revelation must have been written before Nero committed suicide in AD 68. Now, here's a choice you have. You can say, well, I believe the external evidence... And I believe what Arrhenius said, we'll take his word for it, we'll go with a late date. You're, you're discounting the inspiration of Scripture because you're, you're leaving Scripture to go to some statement that some guy made that you're going to cling on to. This is very clear from Scripture. He's measuring a temple that didn't exist after AD 70. He's talking about a king that didn't exist after AD 70. He wasn't on the throne. So very clear, the evidence that's inside the Bible, helps us determine this date. So we're going to get rid of that late date view, okay? Scratch that off your list. It's, it's not... Listen, um, Zane Hodges was a personal friend of mine. We communicated back and forth a bunch. He visited and spoke at the church many times. He was on the translating committee for the New King James Bible, all right? And I talked to Zane. Zane was a futurist, but I asked him, you know, what, what was the date? What the date did you guys hold as far as the books of the Bible? And he said, everybody on that committee believed that all of the Bible was written prior to 8070. I said, really? All the committee, every one of the committee members. I'm like, that's impressive. It was all written prior to 8070. Listen, anything written after 8070, I mean, the main topic would have to be what? Our temple's destroyed. Our temple's gone. Our sacrifice, you know, you'd have to talk about that. That's a major event. But they don't. Why? Because the Bible's written before it happened. All right? 
Internal evidence points clearly to an early date view. All right, the second question that's key to understanding Revelation is, what is the proper approach to the book? Now, there's four basic approaches to this book. One is called the historicist view. Then there's the idealist view, the futurist view, and the preterist view. Each view provides a different interpretation of the book. I mean, how do we look at this book? How do we approach the book? The historicist view view Revelation as a panorama of church history from the apostolic era to the final return of Christ. The different judgment scenes are applied to different historical events throughout time. This school is always in revision because every time something new happens, yes, that Revelation talks about that here. It talks about that there. So they see it as just this, this history lesson. And here's what's going to happen throughout the ages. All right? I bet people who hold this view, you know, that everything that happens in history, they got it connected to Revelation somehow. Okay? Then there's the idealist view. They hold that Revelation is not to be taken as any specific reference to any historical event. It's just a bunch of basic principles of how God acts throughout the history. It's, thus they see Revelation as kind of a poem setting forth a, the ageless struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Okay, It's not speaking of any historical events. It's just teaching us a lesson. This is how life is in the spiritual world. So this view denies any specific historical fulfillment of the events, past or future. Then the futurist view. This view sees the prophecies of Revelation, particularly after Revelation 4.1, as set in the distant future from John's time. Now here's the thing. If this book is set in the distant future from John's time, when John wrote it, what did it mean to the people that he wrote it to? Nothing. It couldn't have meant anything to them. Because it was written for somebody else. We'll talk about that a little bit more here, all right? This view understands that Revelation deals with the ultimate historical outcome of the world. This is undeniably the most popular view today due to dispensationalism. I mean, you ask almost anybody within churchianity, and they're going to hold to the futurist view, all right? Now, there's two fundamental dispensational teachings. One is that God has two differing peoples. And we talked about this last week, okay? They say Israel and the church, two differing peoples, two different purposes, two different destinies. But Yeshua said, I have other sheep that are not from this flock. And I'm going to get them and there's going to be one fold and one shepherd. It's not two peoples. That's a dispensational distinctive. So that falls, I think dispensationalism needs to fall also. But also fundamental to dispensationalism is their eschatology. They teach that someday soon, it's always soon. It has been soon for 2,000 years. Okay, it's always soon. Soon, Christ is going to return to the earth. Invisibly, and He's going to snatch away all the Christians. That's the rapture, right? Come now, you got pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, you know, all these different views. We're not going to get into all that stuff, but the rapture. He comes and takes the Christians out from the rapture. The Christians are gone. After he's removed the church, they say he goes back to dealing with Israel. There'll be a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation in which many Jews are going to be saved. At the end of the tribulation, Christ returns to inaugurate the millennium. At the end of the millennium, there's going to be rebellion and Christ will come 
and the eternal state will begin. Now here's the problem. I count three comings. He comes invisibly at the rapture. He comes at the end of the tribulation. He comes at the end of the millennium. That's three comings. The entire scheme of dispensational eschatology, though popular, has no roots in historic Christian interpretation of the Scriptures. No roots. This view is held by most end-time cults, the Mormons, the JWs, Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God. And then we have the last view, the view that makes the most sense. All right, The preterist view. Now, i got to say, the preterist view is divided between what's called partial preterists, which to me, a partial preterist is a futurist. Okay, but I'll explain that a little more. And the full preterist. All right? The partial preterist understands that most, but not all the prophecies of Revelation have already been fulfilled. They believe that all the books have been filled up to chapter 20. I was in this camp for a while. Okay? I believed everything in Revelation was fulfilled up to chapter 20. And they see us now being in the millennium of chapter 20. The full preterist, though, understands that all of the prophecies of Revelation have been fulfilled. The full preterist... Here's, here's what's difficult for some people. The full preterist sees us now living in the new heavens and the new earth of chapter 21. <laughs> you know, people go, what? This is the new heavens and new earth? We got ripped off. Listen, when we talk about the new heavens and new earth, it's not a physical utopia. It is a spiritual reality. God dwells with His people. And in these chapters, the Bible says, but outside, are dogs and sorcerers and hormones. Outside what? Outside of the new heavens and new earth. Outside of the new covenant. There's still these people there. It's not a physical utopia. Revelation prophecies, issues, and events beginning with John's own day. So that's he's talking about. Things that are going to happen for those people. From our perspective, these events are in the distant past. And that's why the designation preterist, it comes from the Latin word for past, preter, past. Now, there are evangelical adherents who interpret Revelation based on all of these schools. But most of the church holds either to the futurist or the partial preterist view. We're going to look at Revelation from the full preterist view, which I believe is the only consistent position to take. Most people who are futurists have never heard of the preterist view. And when they hear it, they often throw dust in the air and tear their clothes. Okay? Because it just doesn't seem to fit with what they've been taught. But let's forget about what we've been taught and let's just apply ourselves to the Scriptures themselves. Most commentators who write on Revelation, most preachers who talk on Revelation, violate the basic hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. Most people have never heard of hermeneutics. Most Christians. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. There's rules. There's laws to how you interpret a document. You don't just make stuff up and say, I think it means this. Who cares what you think? How How are we supposed to interpret that? And one of the main principles of hermeneutics is this. Audience relevance. Now, does that make sense to you? In other words, what do the people that John was writing to, how did they see it? Because he's writing to them. See, the book of Revelation is not written to us. (gasps) What? It's part of the Bible. 
unless you're in one of the churches in Asia Minor in the first century, it's not written to you. Okay? And most people get the book of Revelation like it's a newspaper, like it just showed up on the door that day. Oh, wow, cool, we got a letter from God. Look what it says. John, to the seven churches. We're not in one of those churches. The letter went to the wrong house. Okay? we got to understand audience relevance. And the concern of the evangelical interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. Who was Revelation written to? The seven churches. Seven historical, literal church. I always ask people that. Who was Revelation written to? Me. Really? How do you get you in that book? I got, you know, in my Bible, there's a book to the Philippians. I'm not a Philippian. There's a book to the Colossians. I'm not a Colossian. There's no book in there to the Tidewaterians. You know? There's none in there like that. Listen, and I'm, the Bible is not written to us. It's written in the first century, but it's written for us. And we need to understand that distinction, and we need to read it in light of its original audience. All right. At least three audience factors in Revelation emphasize the original audience and their circumstances. And these three factors move us toward a preterist position. First of all, Revelation 1.4 clearly states that John wrote to a particular historical group that existed in his day. Look at Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's who he's writing this book to. To them. Grace to you and peace from Him who was and who is and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, if you drop down to verse 11, it tells us exactly who these churches are. Saying, write in a book what you see the angel's talking to John. Write this down, John. And send it to the seven churches. He didn't say send it to the people in 21st century America. They're going to need this information. No. Send it to the seven churches. What churches? Watch. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. John's not writing a panoramic perspective He's writing to historical people. And chapters 2 and 3 contain letters to each one of these seven churches. Each one of these letters deals with specific things for that church in that day. Okay? So that's the audience. John's writing seven churches, first century in Asia Minor. Secondly, John wrote to these churches in order to be understood. He didn't say, guess what, guys? I'm going to send you some code stuff. you got to get out your magic decoder ring and try to figure out what I'm talking about here. No, he intended his work to be a revelation. Apocalypsis. It means to uncover or disclose. John is telling these churches, guess what? Here's what's going to happen. He didn't write to obscure the truth, but to reveal it. Revelation 1.3 tells us that he expected his audience to hear with understanding So they would apply these principles. He says to all seven churches, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Finally, in Revelation 1.9, John says this, I, John, your brother 
and fellow partaker in the tribulation. John is saying, I'm a companion with you in the tribulation. John and the seven churches are in the tribulation together as he writes this. I'm a companion with you in this. Revelation's contemporary expectation together with the factors of audience relevance argue strongly for a preterist view of Revelation. In Revelation 1.1, John specifically states that the prophecies of Revelation will begin to take place in a very short time. How do we miss this stuff? Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Okay, you're in the first century. You're in the church of Sardis. You're reading this letter. When do you think these things are going to happen? Why is that complicated? We know what we miss here is we miss the audience. Again, we read this like, oh, I just got this today in the mail. This is going to happen soon. Well, see, if you think this is written to the first century and it's going to happen soon to them, if it's soon to them and it's still soon to us, what does that mean? It means the Bible doesn't communicate at all because it can't be soon to them and soon to us 2,000 years later. Or soon doesn't mean soon. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. All right. Now, he emphasizes this truth in a variety of ways through different language. He carefully varies the manner of his expression as if to avoid any potential confusion on the matter. In other words, I want you to get this straight, okay? The Greek word translated soon here is from the Greek word takos. Now, according to Arndt and Gingrich lexicon, takos is used in the Septuagint and in certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. John uses the same word in Revelation 2016, 3.11, 22.6, 7, 12, and 20. It's happening soon. All right? Things that are soon. The things I'm writing to you about, this whole book, it's soon to happen. He also uses the Greek word engus in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. Why? For... Time is near. Ingus, translated here as near. It's used in Revelation 22.10. The term speaks of temporal nearness. And John uses this word to bracket the book. Now the third Greek word that he uses here is mellow. Translated about to. Look at Revelation 1.19. Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, it's really hard to see it, you know, in the English, so we'll go to Young's literal translation, which really brings out the tenses. He says, the things that are about to come. All right, he said it's going to be soon. The things are near. They're about to come. We're in the first chapter, okay? You're starting to get the flavor of what he's trying to say here? Look what he says in 3.10, which is about to come upon the whole world. Now, when he says whole world, he doesn't mean every person alive. Okay? Their world. This tribulation was happening. Now, if we apply the principle of audience relevance, what would the original readers thought when they read this? It's soon. It's near. It's about to happen. John strategically places these words at the introduction and the conclusion of the book. 
John was telling the seven churches to expect these things at any minute. And here we are, 2,000 years later, we're still expecting these things any minute. Something's wrong. Now, some try to redefine these terms because it, these, this understanding this doesn't fit their theology. One dispensational writer explains that the use of tachos in Revelation means this. He says, the idea is not that the event may occur soon, but when it starts to happen, it will happen real fast. Well, first of all, that's not a definition of tachos, okay? That's, that's not what it means. What consolation would this have given those persecuted saints? See, the book of Revelation is comforting these churches to tell them that the tribulation, the Lord's coming soon to end your tribulation. Things are going to get better. Interpreting this passage to mean that Yeshua will come very quickly in two or three thousand years mocks their historical circumstances. Revelation hails the event of Yeshua as a relief. The original audience would have been consoled to hear that once He started to come, He's going to come real fast. That, that's not going to help them at all. Your house is on fire. It's burning down. We've called the firemen. They said they'd be there soon. And by soon they mean, whenever they get around to coming, they're going to hurry up and get over there. Well, I need them now. Because if they come in 2,000 years, guess what? They're no help to me at all. The house is burnt down. And if you want to use that definition of tachos, when it happens, it'll happen quickly. What do you do with this passage? Philippians 2.19 But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I always ask people who hold the futurist position, I say, are you looking forward to Timothy showing up? And they're like, what? Are you crazy? Well, the Bible says he's going to send Timothy shortly. Same word he uses of Christ coming shortly. Timothy's coming shortly. Christ's coming shortly. What's the difference? Well, that's talking to the Philippians. Oh, you're starting to catch on. That's right. Who's the context? Timothy's coming shortly. He's not telling the Philippians he'll run when he finally starts to come. No, he, Timothy's going to come to you people. A major objection to the preterist view is the issue of Christ's second coming. In several of these passages, references made to Christ's coming. For example, 22.7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now this, this idea of him coming quickly resounds in these verses. Did Yeshua come in the first century? I believe he did, just as he said he would. Listen, if Yeshua didn't come in the first century... We have a problem with inspiration. Because he said he was. Now the partial preterists say that these verses in Revelation only refer to Yeshua's coming in judgment on Israel. Not to his second advent. Which would not be a second advent, it would be a third advent. Okay? The Revelation truly does speak of his coming in judgment on Israel. The theme of this book says this, and we'll look at this further next week, but behold... He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. What's something that stands out to you in that verse? See that first phrase is capitalized? Why is it capitalized? It's a quote. Alright? 
Where is he quoting from? He's quoting from the Tanakh. Again, if you're jumping into Revelation and you say, behold, he comes with clouds, you're thinking, I know what that means. Because I know what a cloud is, right? A puffy little white thing out there. So he's coming with them. Uh, is he going to ride on them? Is he going to sit on them? His throne's on the cloud. He's surfing the cloud. How, what's, you know, see, these are images we get in our mind because we don't understand the Tanakh. If you understood the Tanakh, a cloud coming of God is a coming in judgment. That's what the reference is to. But again, you have to know the Tanakh. Psalm 103, uh, verse 3 says, He lays beams in his upper chamber in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. The chariot is coming in battle against a certain people. It's a judgment coming. Isaiah 19.1 is a great verse to help you understand this. The oracle concerning Egypt. This prophecy is about Egypt. Got that right? Behold, Yahweh is riding a swift cloud. Yahweh's coming on a cloud and is about to come to Egypt. He's going to show up in Egypt. Watch, the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now we know from chapter 20 that God used the Assyrians as instruments of His wrath on Egypt. Yet it says, the Lord's riding a crowd. Egypt will tremble at His presence. God came to Egypt, but He physically did not show up in Egypt. Nobody saw Him. He came in judgment and He used the Assyrians. This is the same thing as we see in the New Testament. Yeshua came in judgment on Jerusalem and He used the Romans. But His presence was made known in judgment. In this text, it was the Assyrians who were present. No one saw God. No one saw somebody on a cloud. This is apocalyptic language. Psalm 18, 7-14 and Joel 2, 1-2 speak of cloud comings. Christ's coming spoke of in Revelation 1-7 is a judgment coming which focuses upon first century Israel. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. Who pierced Him? Who's that a reference to? Israel. They're the ones that wanted Christ crucified. As a consequence of His coming in judgment, it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, all the tribes of the earth, the word earth here is gay, and it means land. Soil, country, earth. The tribes of the land is a familiar designation for Israel. They pierced Him. They're going to mourn. The the Jews crucified Yeshua. And listen, they were punished for it. Now, in case you're not sure it was them who did it, look at Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Yeshua, whom you crucified. Who crucified Him? Israel. Israel crucified Him. He was coming on Israel as a judgment. Yeshua told the Jewish leaders they would personally witness His judgment coming. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Yeshua kept silent. And the high priest said to Him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you, who? The high priest. He's talking to the high priest. You will see 
the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. He's telling the high priest, you're going to see this. The destruction of Jerusalem evidenced Yeshua's coming in the clouds for that historical group of people. But are we to see it only as a coming in judgment on Israel? See, the full preterist sees the judgment coming on Israel as the second coming of Christ. Yeshua said that He would come in the lifetime of His disciples, not just to judge Israel, but that He would come in the glory of His Father with His angels to reward every man. Matthew 16.27 The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He's going to repay everybody according to their deeds. At Christ's coming, He was to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And it was to happen quickly. Now this verse sounds just like Revelation 22.12. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Same thing. And notice he says, Revelation, I'm coming quickly. Quickly. And in, in Matthew 16.27.28, in verse 28 he says to his disciples, there's some of you standing here who will not die until they see me come. So he says, I'm coming quickly. He says, some of you are still going to be alive when I come. Now, in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, we see that the judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous happen at the same time. Matthew 13, 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we see here that not only are the tares burned in judgment, that's a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem, but the righteous are gathered into the Father's barn. This is the kingdom. This is believers being brought into the kingdom of God. Now he goes on in Matthew to explain this parable in verse 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are sons of the kingdom. The good seed are the children of God. They're the ones being brought into the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. So we got the tares being judged. We've got the believers being rewarded. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. That's a bad translation. All right. Uh, because I think we are confused about age here. All right? It's referring to the Jewish age. Not the Christian age, because the Christian age doesn't have an end. It's an everlasting kingdom. All right? So the harvest is at the end of the Jewish age, the end of that age, and the reapers are the angels. So as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and throw them into the furnace of fire. That's going to be a judgment. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, the partial preterist says this gathering will happen at a future second coming which would actually be a third coming. But the Scriptures teach it happened at the same time as the judgment against Jerusalem. 
at the end of the Old Covenant world. Unbelievers are judged. Believers are rewarded. Now, the Scriptures also teach that both the righteous and the wicked dead will be resurrected at the same time. We see in 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise on the day of His return. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Alright? So the resurrection is described by John, we've, we've looked at this in the Gospel, as being on the last day, referring to the last day of the Old Covenant. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The last day of the world? No, the last day of the Old Covenant. This day of resurrection is also reserved for the wicked, according to John. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all are in the tombs will hear the voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, the time of this resurrection was not at some far distant future, thousands of years away. The time had arrived in Yeshua's generation. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, we could conclude that the gathering and the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked will occur at the same time at the last day. When the Lord Yeshua was to come again. The coming of the Lord in the destruction of Jerusalem was the second coming. And it happened in the first century. His coming to judge the wicked and gather the saints was to be a comfort to the first century believers. It would give them rest at His coming. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10. through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So first of all, God's going to repay. People are bothering you. They're troubling you. They're afflicting you. He's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. But also, He's going to give relief to you who are afflicted. So He's going to come and take care of the afflictors, and He's going to give grace to you. Now watch. And to us as well. When's He going to do this? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. When the second coming happens, He's going to afflict those who've been afflicting you and He's going to give you rest. With His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Yeshua, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. He's going to come to be glorified in the saints. He tells them that the second coming is not only to bring judgment, it's also to gather the saints into the spiritual kingdom of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, and our gathering together to Him. So they're going to be gathered when He comes. The believers. Now, in Matthew 24, 29-31, Yeshua predicted His coming to judge Israel and to gather together the saints in that generation, first century. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul spoke of the coming of the Lord to gather the saints. We need to ask ourselves, how many comings of the Lord with His angels in fire, in power, in glory to gather the saints are there in the New Testament? There's only one. And it happened in AD 70. Now, 
The partial preterists, they believe in two second comings of Christ. One in AD 70 to judge Israel, but they also believe in a physical final coming that is still somewhere out there in the future. The problem is they don't have any verses to fit it. They don't have verses that talk about a third coming. The only coming talked about in the Bible is a near coming. There's not a near and a far coming. It's always near. There's always a time indicator. And and if they do believe that the second coming is still in the future, anybody who believes the second coming is still future has to understand that if that's true, then we are under the old covenant law still. Because not a jot or a tittle of the old covenant law will pass away until heaven and earth have passed away. Matthew 5, 17. So if heaven and earth have not passed, we're still under the law. And that's not a very good place to be. There's no biblical evidence, people, for a third coming. The only coming Yeshua spoke of was one to come in that generation. It was to be quickly, soon, shortly. It was at hand. Remember how John began this book? It must soon take place. Verse 3, the time is near. He began the very first verses. He grabs them. It's coming quickly. Pay attention to this, people. Now listen to how John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ends the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, chapter 22. 22, 6, and 7. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. What words? The words of the prophecy, the book of Revelation. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because look at verse 1 here. To show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. To show His bondservants... He's bracketing the book. He starts the book with, hey, bondservants, I want to show you what's going to soon take place. He ends it. Bondservants... See, I used to believe, as a partial preterist, I believed up to 20 was fulfilled, but these verses plagued me. Because you got these verses at the beginning, you got these verses at the end... How can you say it's not over yet? These verses fit together. The time statements bracket the book. Everything in the book was to happen soon. Look at verse 7. He says, And behold, I am coming quickly. This book's talk about His coming. And He says, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is He hear the words of the prophecy of this book. 22.10 And He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. What did the angel tell Daniel? Seal this book up, because it's a long way off. And he was referring to like 600 and some years. 600 and some years is a long way. He says, now, don't seal it, because it's near. How could 600 and some years be long, and then now we're in the new covenant, and near is 2,000 years or longer? Does that fit? Did God not tell time? I think He can tell time. And He says the time is near. So don't seal up these words, John, because now it's the time for this stuff to be revealed. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quick. I know you keep saying that. Why do you keep saying it over and over? Because you're thick and you're not going to get it in the 21st century. I want you to understand, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. 22, 20, and 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Yeshua, the grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you all. Amen. Let me ask you something. 
If he wanted to communicate to the people of the first century, the people he was writing to, if he wanted to communicate to them that he was coming quickly, how else would he do it? How could he possibly stress it more? I'm writing you a book about the end times. I'm going to start out by saying quickly, near, shortly, soon. I'm going to close it with saying this five times. I'm going to tell you in the last chapter, I'm coming quickly. How could he say it more clearly? I don't know how. Listen, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a major apologetic point in the first century. Because Yeshua clearly said that people of that generation would see His coming in judgment on Old Covenant Israel and the end of the age. And not long after, they saw it. And John expected all these events to take place soon after he had written. It's my opinion that the full preterist approach to the book is the best choice for interpreting Revelation in light of the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. Revelation was written to seven churches to tell them things that would soon, soon to them, not soon to us 2,000 years later, soon to them takes place. The theme of the book was a prophecy of near future events. Now to us, this is history. It tells us of events that happened 2,000 years ago. But to them, it was on the verge. Now, next Sunday, we'll come back and we're going to look at the theme of Revelation. What's this book about? What's it talking about? When you understand the theme, when you understand these, the time statements, when it was written, and the theme of the purpose of this book is laid out like this, you can't miss it. You know, as far as the rest of the book, we don't need to go verse by verse through this book. Just understand, soon, quickly, shortly, okay? People write and ask me, who are the two witnesses? I write, who cares? They're dead, whoever they were. They happened back in A.D. 70, all right? That was the end of that. So do we know all the details and all the players? I don't. Some people think they know them all. But it's not that important. The important thing was, he's telling you, you're in tribulation. Times are tough right now. The Lord's coming and end your tribulation. He's going to put you, going to shut the biggest persecutor of the Christians were the Jews. God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to shut down that Jewish system. End your persecution. I'm coming soon. That's comforting to them. If you say the Lord's coming today is soon, that's very troubling. Because it means the Lord doesn't understand time. He doesn't understand language. And He's been confusing people for 2,000 years. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I pray you would give us the heart of Bereans. Lord, I ask that people would not believe anything they hear without first examining it, without first being a Berean and studying it to see if this is so. May we be convinced of what we believe because we found it in the Word of God. Teach us, Lord, that we might be servants, your humble servants. Open our eyes to the truth of your Word. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen.